My name is Christo Siros. I'm the uh, Quebec's Agent General here in London. And it's a particular pleasure for me to be here at this sixth edition of the Quebec Annual Lectures, which uh, the Quebec Government Office here in London sponsors each year. Now, for those of you who don't know uh, Quebec or the Quebec Government Office, as well as you may know Charles Taylor, um, just let me briefly tell you a little bit about us, what we do, and why. Canada, as you know, is a federation with two orders of government, each with its constitutional jurisdictions. And Quebec, as a people with a distinct identity within Canada, has developed a network of international offices that promotes our interests within these jurisdictions. We've been present here in the UK for the last 50 years. And our mandate in, here in the UK and the Nordic countries, which we cover from London, includes economic development, cultural and educational affairs, and cooperation with governments and institutions. The goal is to promote and encourage uh, trade and investment, promote our artists and cultural industries, and on a more fundamental level, promote a better understanding of who we are as Quebecers for those that we engage with. And in French, we would say, ce que nous sommes en tant que nation. The Quebec Annual Lecture was conceived as one such event to annually showcase some of our best in a variety of fields, from science and technology with astronaut Julie Payette, uh, business and the economy with Pierre Baudouin of Bombardier, culture and the arts with uh, Gilbert Rozon of the Just for Laughs Festival, to this year's field of philosophy and education with Charles Taylor here tonight, We've uh, strived to offer a London stage and audience to our speakers. And I'm particularly happy to have teamed up this year with such an iconic institution as the London School of Economics for this year's edition, which is my first as Agent General. Quebec, much like Britain, has long taken pride in having been able to uh, integrate the various diverse components of its society into a people with a common set of core values without asking them to lose their own distinctive roots. In Quebec, as elsewhere, this process and this pride is being put to the test. In 2007, on a background of rising ethno-religious tensions, the Quebec government asked Charles Taylor to co-chair a public inquiry into the future of cultural and religious differences in Quebec. It was an extraordinary exercise that allowed for a wide public debate on a highly sensitive issue in an open, democratic, and very insightful way. It gave Quebec society a clearer understanding of what is needed for the us and the they to become we. And although there's still much to be done, we're the better for it in Quebec. And in thinking about this year's Quebec Annual Lecture, it struck me that there would be no one more appropriate to address this question of diversity in society than an eminent Quebecer and Canadian who launched his academic career here in the UK and who also interlaced this academic career with an active political engagement. My Greek background forces me to say he married skepsi with praxis. <laughs> Charles Taylor is an extraordinary product of the Anglo-French dynamic which has characterized so much of Quebec's history. Raised in a bicultural, bilingual family with a Protestant English-speaking father and a Roman Catholic Francophone mother, Charles Taylor has a fine understanding of the dynamics that have defined Quebec's politics and social fabrics for the last decades. And I'm very pleased that Professor Taylor has accepted our invitation that I f and that I found such a receptive partner in uh, Craig Calhoun and the LSC 
and that both our staff have worked so well and effectively together for tonight's event. Particular thanks, if I'm allowed, to Asmara and Domenica of the LSC and to Katya and Barbara of my own team. And thank you in particular for being here in such large numbers. And I do hope to see many of you in some of our future events. If you follow us, quebecgovernment.uk. Thank you very much. Well, good evening, everybody. Let me add my few words of welcome to the lovely greeting just given by Christos Soros, the uh, Agent General or Agent General of Quebec. Uh, we are very grateful to Quebec for the sponsorship of this event, and we are very grateful to Charles Taylor for coming to make it possible. I'm also add that this is co-sponsored with the Institute of Public Affairs at LSE, and we appreciate their support. My role could be as simple as simply reminding you that the hashtag for Twitter users is hash LSE Quebec, and that there will be a time for questions and answers at the end. But I'm going to add just a few words of introduction beyond that. It's a great honor and a delight to have Charles Taylor here, partly because he's a personal friend and partly because he's really an extraordinary intellectual. He's had a career of remarkable scholarship that is grounded in philosophy, combining analytic and continental influences, deep influence from the phenomenological tradition, but also the study of language and other themes, extending into political theory, intellectual history, and indeed into public engagement in a variety of contexts, including the important work in Quebec to which Christos alluded earlier. Charles' books are numerous, I won't read all the titles or list them, but his work begins um, from important work on the very nature of being human and the nature of the social sciences and the way they come together by asking what counts as an explanation of what human beings do. In a famous book on the explanation of behavior, he contested the idea that there could be a fully adequate external account in mechanistic terms that accomplished the explanation of behavior. He continued this in other work on human agency, on interpretation and the sciences of man, extensive work on Hegel, two major books, on the state, other work on language, and this feeds into the work on multiculturalism that has been perhaps some of the most widely known of his work, including in direct engagement with the issues of Quebec. He also has been politically active, as Christoph alluded to, in the New Democratic Party in particular. And he has explored issues of the self as basic to modern society and sources of the self and of the nature of a secular age. All of this, I think, comes together in thinking about democracy, diversity, and religion, Charles's topics for tonight. So with no more adieu, I'm happy to greet Charles Taylor. Thank you. Thanks very much to Christos and to the, to the Quebec government, and thanks very much to Craig for the wonderful introduction and to both for the chance to talk about this with you because this is a question that all of us are involved with, but each is involved in a somewhat different situation, 
and you learn a tremendous amount about your own situation and about the problem in general by talking to people and discussing with people in different situations. So I'd like to do something a little bit broad scope and then uh, zero in on some narrower issues by starting off with talking about the nature of our modern, mostly I'm thinking of Western democracies, that is the nature of their legitimacy requirements and the way in which these legitimacy requirements can make them vulnerable to betraying the same requirements. So let's, let's, let me try to look at this first. We're talking about the, now it's not, well, what has often been thought of as standard political theory in the English-speaking world has been, you know, Rawls and Dworkin and so on. It's been very much focused on general normative issues. I'm talking here about the way certain forms of society which are meant to put those normative principles into practice have their own vulnerability and requirements. <clears throat> and that, that is the nature of our, our modern democracies, which have as part of their ethos human rights, equality or non-discrimination, and democratic rule itself. And one of the principles that falls out from all this is inclusion, that there should be no first or second class citizens, that everybody should be included. But now these societies, and actually Craig Cohn has written very interesting on, on, on this question, these societies can only function with a rather strong notion of what their common identity is, their common goals, the common principles. Why? Well, because if you're living in a democracy as against an autocracy, there are certain requirements that arise that you can't be simply forced to carry out from on top. One is some basic solidarity that, you know, when, when people are really in trouble in the society, they are helped by the rest of us. When there are deep inequalities which are undermining people's lives, there's redistributive taxation. I know there are certain a republic to our south, there are certain people that don't quite believe that, but this, you know, <clears throat> but they're seeing their society fall apart. As a result, I would argue, this is a requirement of the legitimacy of this society that people feel this sense of solidarity and will help each other. Otherwise, those who are left out can very often feel we're not part of this society, we are not members of it. There needs the same sense of common purpose if we're going to have what we think of as central to democracy, a common deliberation by everybody to decide what direction we're going to take, what legislation we're going to adopt, right? And if people are going to feel bound by that after they lose the election, and I have a lot of experience of this, if people are going to feel <clears throat> bound by that, they have to feel that, yeah, we were talking about the same basic issues. You know, we were not, those others were not thinking simply of their common good, but thinking of the general common good, right? And this is one of the things we suffered in Canada, that, that you know, independent sentiment has been, has been malnourished in Quebec by people thinking that the rest of the country don't really have their good as part of the whole at heart. I don't think that's true, but, but you can see how that kind of fundamental trust that a democratic society needs requires that we sort of are clear what the basic parameters of the discussion, common discussion, are. So for all these reasons, we need, let me call it a political identity. 
and is what we're all agreed that our society is about. <clears throat> and this political identity generally has two dimensions. As I mentioned earlier, all modern democratic societies are make very central point of a political ethic, of a certain notion of human rights, equality, non-discrimination, democratic rule. But that's never the whole story. Because what you feel powerfully attached to is not only these principles in general, but these principles as they're embedded in your particular historic project of realizing them. I mean, you know, when I see terrible things happening to uh, democratic principles in other parts of the world, I feel, uh, as we all probably in this room share, great pain in seeing what's happening now in Turkey, what happened in Russia, and so on. Yeah, but when I feel that my own society is betraying these, I have to admit, I feel shame. I mean, shame is an <laughs> emotion I'm beginning to get used to. And, but there's a very powerful sense of, uh, you know, I can't live with this. That is the power of what people call patriotism. Now, I think that Habermas is right. Modern patriotism is mostly constitutional. But I think he maybe sometimes underestimates that constitutional patriotism has that particular attachment to not just the principles in general, but to our particular historical project of realizing them. And we have one, of course, a very complex one in a federal society like Canada, where Quebec in Canada is the, is the object of this. All right, so why is this? That's fine. Why is this a danger? Well, it can be a danger because it very often can happen that this common identity or the definitions of this common identity can turn against certain elements of the society and mark them as, no, not living up to this identity. Now, this is, we're aware of this in our past. Uh, I mean, you think of the new democracies that grew in Central Europe after the Wilsonian settlements of the First World War. And we could see that those societies with the perhaps no, noble exception of, of Czechoslovak Republic, but the Poles and the Hungarians and so on, the societies really didn't have a place for ethnic minorities. They were, they were hanging on, teetering on the edge or badly treated or in, in some way or other treated as second-class citizens. So you can see what happens if the definition is purely ethnic. Well, ours, of course, are not no longer... I say, supposedly purely ethnic. They really are heavily based on these principles. But that also can be used. Uh, example from the U.S. It's a safe target here. A Canadian talking to, to Brits and so on. But it, you had Romney in the last uh, presidential election who made this famous remark, which actually cost him the election, about the 47%. That meant that, you know, 47% of the population that were not really pulling their weight, who were recipients of, from the rest, but not, uh, not really working as they should. Here you have the implicit idea of an ethic, which we all are supposed to share, which are part of what makes us Americans or whatever, and this ethic they're falling short, right? So immediately you get these people put in a, in a second-class zone. And if this particular ideology becomes strong enough, 
among certain element of the population, then you get very dubious practices in a democracy where one tries to lower the voting level among certain populations by making it difficult for them to vote. And say, we all know about these, these measures, which are justified in the minds of those carrying them out on the grounds that, yeah, the ethical component of our common identity is not being lived up to. And then you get the real danger, which is that what is in a certain sense largely an ethical difference is coded in a principled way. Example of this in American history, which is a good example because they got over it. When the Irish immigrants first arrived in the 1840s, a lot of really Protestant society and all these papists began to come in. It was really pretty hard to swallow. Well, they were, it was a know-nothing party that was reluctant to give them citizenship. And, but the argument was they don't really have our political culture. They, you know, they don't understand. They, they practice boss rule in the cities, some truth of that. And so, but here you have a, a difference of really, well, ethnic religious in this case, coded as a difference of <clears throat> ethical failure, I mean, which involved an ethical failure. Now, I think something like that is what has been happening. And now I want to switch, switch gears and look at the issue that almost all of us are facing with immigrants from other parts of the world and different religions, principally Islam. I think something like this is happening, but I, I want to discuss it in the following way, maybe chickening out to a certain degree. I want to talk about Quebec experience, so I hope you will abide with me. We're all obsessed with Quebec. We come, who come from Quebec. So, but I want to talk about Quebec experience and then ask questions about whether, to what extent, this is generalizable to other societies in the West. So we had in Quebec a couple of years ago an attempt by the then government to put through a, a charter of secularism, Charte de la Laïcité, which really was, in an important sense, aimed at people of, to us, strange religions in the sense of the not ones that we're familiar with historically, which are Catholic, Protestant, uh, <coughs> Jewish, I mean, Orthodox to a certain degree as well, but, but uh, not Muslim, not Hindu, not Sikh, and so on. And this caused a great deal of cultural discomfort. In a, way, in a way, this is perfectly understandable, and I see this in many other societies in, in, in Europe, for instance, but it's something that one shouldn't get morally condemnatory of just as a feeling. You know, people feel that strange customs, are they going to change us? Are they going to lead us away from ourselves? And so on. But what is dangerous is when politicians take this up and argue that certain restrictions have to be put on these people because there is something dangerous and threatening about them. Okay, so I want to now ask the question that may sound crazy and gratuitous, but I think it's a question worth looking in. Why does religion in our day and age attract this uh, I mean, become the definition, the, the dominant definition of what's wrong, of what's dangerous, of what's problematic about these, these people. Well, I mean, this is a crazy question, isn't it? I mean, you know, 
uh, on one hand, it may seem, I'll go to Quebec again. We have a society which decades ago had an extremely powerful, dominant Catholic church that really rode, heard, maybe not because it had any legal powers, but because of the power of social cohesion, forced people to do various things they didn't want to do. And then in the 60s, they broke out from that. So very much like the French case where the history of a hegemonic Catholic Church was challenged by the laic republic, the, there are a lot of people who feel that they're just breaking out from religious control. And then when they see new immigrants who are obviously practicing their religion or seem to be practicing their religion in a much more vigorous way, there's a fear about are we going to regress? Many, uh, many feminists have felt this. You know, we just won through to some kind of equality and very imperfectly in Quebec between men and women. We still don't have equal pay, but we're moving there. But we have what looks like gestures of submission by women in terms of the hijab and so on. So are they going to change us? Are we going to lose our gains? And secondly, of course, there is the whole geopolitical situation since 9-11, jihadism, terror, violence. And so that's another reason why people are particularly concerned about Muslim immigrants. So you could say, yeah, that's, it's quite understandable why religion should attract this. But that's not the whole story, you see, because we discover when we make any kind of sociological uh, studies on this, and I have quite a bit of information on that, but I won't go into it all now, that being in favor of the charter correlated very highly with people who said, we have too many immigrants, or people who said, well, we can't take this number of immigrants, or people who said, a lot of people from other countries make me uncomfortable, and so on. You see, there is a deep, deep cultural fear which when you overcome it by which you always do when you have real contact between Im immigrants and, and local people, right, um, disappears because what it's really based on is a lot of stereotypes which, which induce this, this fear. And the fear is, as it were, taking this religious difference as its, as its best formulation, right? So the, the question still arises, why do these, why is religion the, the marker of all this? Well, now what I want to do now is to destabilize our categories. I'm sorry, but we're, uh, I'm going to maybe confuse many of you. I'm confusing myself as well. But I think we have to be confused in order to see the pitfalls that lie in this particular mode of definition. And what's going to be confused is our post-Baberian understanding that society has different spheres. There's a political sphere, there's a religious sphere, there's an artistic sphere, the sphere of art, etc., uh, <coughs> of, of the economy. This notion of different spheres, we think that everything can be, as it were, divided up into these. And of course, the notion very often of separation of religion from politics builds on the idea that there is clearly different 
spheres. Well, the problem is that a great deal of human life can't be entirely captured by this. And as a matter of fact, of course, people recognize, historians, that when you go back to earlier societies, the Roman Republic, for instance, the idea of a political sphere or a sphere, I mean, doesn't, you know, Caesar was Pontifex Maximus and so on. You know, it, it's, you can't really put a cleavage between the two in those societies. And a lot of the way that people behave can't be divided up that way in contemporary society. So, I mean, what follows from this is that it, it's confusing, but let's hang on to that because if you keep following this line of thinking, I think a new map emerges. But let's take examples of what are thought to be really horrible behavior by a lot of us here today, like female genital mutilation or honor killing, right? which we rightly abhor and are totally incompatible with our society. Well, these are thought to be religious practices of certain religions, and what's usually blamed here is, is Islam. Well, are they? In one way, of course they aren't. If you ask any sort of imam or what have you, you know, al-Azhar, if this is something Islamic, they will say, no. And also, these practices also exist uh, in other kinds of society that are not Muslim. I mean, you have all the kinds of people really getting very angry when the daughter marries outside and even going as far as, <clears throat> as taking violent action. Right? It can exist in certain East Mediterranean Christian societies and certain Hindu societies and so on. So female genital mutilation exists in certain totally pagan societies and certain, yeah. So from that point of view, it's not. But from another point of view, I said if you go very, very far back in history to more, as it were, base communities, people in basic communities like tribal areas, they don't make the distinction between what's part of their way of life, their customs, and their religion. It's all, this, it's all one, right? So this is something which is really in a very ambiguous middle zone so that's, so there's some kind of already making a decision about this and flipping this over into the religious category. Now, but I want us to see that this is not a forced choice. This is a choice that we make. And as the argument goes on, I want to argue this is a very disastrous choice. But anyway, but let's go on and ask further questions. Why does, why do we code it as religious? Well, another reason why we code it as religious is that on both sides, uh, we want a really good reason in terms of what we think of as good reasons. Now, supposing I just have a cultural practice, which is part of my culture, right? And I want you to make an exception for me because the rules say I shouldn't wear this and I want to wear this or whatever it is. Well, we don't have in our charters... Uh, you know, the right of somebody with a purely cultural difference to demand that they be accommodated. But we do have in our charters the, the point that a religious difference must be accommodated. So I'm tempted to ask for this under the title religion. And at the same time, from the other side, we have laicity, right? So where 
purity cultural practice doesn't seem threatening, coded as a religious practice, oh my God, what's that? Where, where, where are we going? So the, the laicity question is, is raised. You can see that there are reasons pushing us to decide this very fuzzy question that we could decide either way. Is that religious or is it not religious? There are grounds that push us towards defining it in, in religious terms. Well, then let's move on to see why this is not necessarily a good idea. It's not a very bad idea. And it's a bad idea because of other issues about religion that are, I think, very badly understood. That very often, you see this all the time in the argument. This has been my experience in arguments about this, you know, in Quebec, but also elsewhere. People say, well, look, that's obviously Islamic. Why? Well, because, you know, the people are referring to the Quran here when they're <clears throat> defending this or that, and so it must be. So they have the idea, in this case, let's take Islam. Here is a religion which has a total unity of view as to what you ought to do, and it had that same view right back in the, until the seventh, in the seventh century when Muhammad started. So you get this block view of Islam as, you know, totally one thing. So if you have people that are just practicing not very worrying practices of Islamic piety, like wearing a hijab, well, they're part of the same system which generates you know, honor killing and so on, so you better watch out. I mean, we can't allow them to go too far. This kind of block thinking is very, very common because of a certain Again, just as we have a certain oversimple idea of the religious sphere, the political sphere, the cultural sphere, so we have an oversimple idea in our society about religion. In fact, of course, the, if you take Islam, it's incredibly varied over time and space. There are various spiritualities, the whole Sufi spiritualities, which are not focused in the same narrow banned as, the, as some of the, of the more fundamentalist positions that we see today. You know, we had, uh, I mean, uh, this is a very striking fact, which Mukulika uh, Banerjee here has written the, the book about, which is very, people, whenever I try to describe this, they're totally flabbergasted. The same northwest frontier province, which is producing all of Taliban today and making a lot of trouble for the Pakistani government and the Afghan government and the American government and so on. The same area produced very powerful Sufi-inspired movement in which jihad meant what it also means in Islam, the greater jihad, a spiritual struggle, which was aligned with Gandhi in, in British India in a non-violent struggle for independence and didn't actually want to join Pakistan, but they were forced to, etc. See, so you have this great variety, and we could go on and on and on with, with examples of that. Well, what's been happening in the modern world, of course, is reactions to various features of modernity, which people roughly call fundamentalist. And I think this is not entirely wrong word because it involves people saying oh everything's going to pieces we've got to go back to the basics of our religious tradition and really focus on these, these fundamentals there's a tremendous pathos of all fundamentalisms 
that they think they're going back, but they're being incredibly inventive in the force of doing that. So take the well-known case of Protestant, Bible-centered American religions, which reacted to various liberal interpretations of the Bible by talking about biblical inerrancy. And you see that they have this idea of the total literal, every page of the Bible literally. There's something which is very foreign from, you'd have trouble explaining this to Augustine. I mean, it doesn't, you know, wouldn't make sense. It's something tremendously modern. It belongs to a modern culture informed by science which downgrades metaphor and image and so on as being not really serious. Uh, not really a serious use of language, right? So if the Bible's got to be serious, it can't be, you know, it's got to be taken as science, see? So you have something here, you have an example of fundamentalism which is really, which thinks it's going back, but is actually under the pressure of modernity in certain modern conditions, uh, innovating in a very profound way, but in this case, not a very productive way. And in in Islamic context, something similar occurs, and what the effect it has, just as it does in the Christian case, is a radical narrowing of the perspective of what Islamic practices really are, targeting Sufism, targeting various other kinds of practices, targeting the spiritual traditions around saints and their tombs and peers in India targeting all these and wanting to eliminate them. You get this radical restriction of what a a faith involves. So, I mean, what follows from this actually is that the, what should be very interesting for us in the West who find ourselves very often the target of Islamic fundamentalism is that the great resistance to this comes precisely from all these other facets of Islam who are fighting back in various parts of the world. I mean, there is an actual sort of creation of a Sufi, Sufi international, including certain Pakistanis and Green Mechlevi from, from Turkey and so on, attempting precisely to resist this narrowing of, uh, of the, what, the scope of Islam by modern, totally Sharia-oriented, Sharia-oriented to the expense of any kind of spiritual development, uh, Islam. So one thing that happens is that you have in the modern world fundamentalism, this kind of narrowing of the scope of Islam, which claims to speak for Islam. And of course that, if you buy that, then you get to this block image that's all been the same since Muhammad and it's all you know, very, very narrowly conceived. But the thing is, you know, why should we buy that when it's not, it doesn't really have a basis in, in, in fact. Now, this kind of narrowing also goes on for other reasons too. I mean, there are reform movements, and there have been reform movements in both Christianity and Islam over the ages, which have tried to do something like the same thing. They've tried to narrow the scope by targeting certain practices. You know, the Protestant Reformation did this. I mean, we have. Uh, uh, concerning certain practices of, of you know, veneration of saints and of <clears throat> stained glass windows and so on. And the Wahhabi tradition, of course, in Islam has done that very seriously. So there are other forces at work which are trying to produce this, this uh, narrowness. Uh, 
And you can even see this happening in our time when we look at a third facet of religion, which also sort of breaks our categories, that very often religious markers are used as a marker of political mobilization. And of course, we're aware of this with national markers. I mean, the whole story of nationalism in modern democracy is that we, we all get together as Poles or as Ukrainians. And, you know, incidentally, who's a Pole, who's a Ukrainian is something that has been really arbitrarily invented. You know, if you go back long enough, what you have in Eastern Europe is a series of dialects slightly differing from each other, moving from village to village, and you can go from East Slovakia into the Czech Republic. And this, this. But then along come the leaders who say, no, we're all this and not that, and then there's a national language, and then uh, <clears throat> all this, this uh, messy stuff gets cleaned up. Well, similarly, in the religious sphere, there's an attempt in these mobilizations to narrow things down in order to make it uh, more or less uh, containable in, as a supposed point of unity for a nation. Now, what happens when all these things come together? And I think the case of Pakistan is interesting from this point of view because there was a first mobilization to be separate from India on the grounds of is being the Islamic, the, the state founded on Islamic tradition and civilization. Right? But that has been, the meaning of that has been changed in the last, um, how many years, 47 plus, I mean 70, almost 70 years in a rather radical way. Jinnah, the two facts about Jinnah are kind of shocking today maybe for many people. One is that he wasn't that pious. I mean, everyone really knows that, right? And the other was that he belonged to, he was Ismaili, he belonged to a very minority fraction of the Muslim community, right? Which is now being persecuted terribly, okay? But he was the one who mobilized you know, the Islamic State in India. And his idea was, of course, that there would be Islamic areas with this, you know, dominance of the Muslims, but they would also have minorities who would be treated well. Right? Now, what's happened? What's happened is that the necessities of national mobilization, coupled with the development of various reform movements, have meant that the definition of the Islamic nature of Pakistan has modified itself into extremely orthodox Sunni position, partly the withdrawal of Bangladesh, you know, the, the fissiparious elements, I mean, all these things lead to the present situation in which huge rafts of the, of the population of Pakistan are kind of targets, I mean, the Sikhs, uh, the, the Shiites and so on are kind of targets of this, uh, of this new identity. They're deliberately declared not really part of, of the community. So you have this tremendous narrowing effect taking place in right before our eyes in modern history. And we need to see how, A, modern and recent that is, B, how utterly arbitrary it is. It's not necessarily the nature of, of Islam. And there are great, you know, in, in Indonesia, in West Africa, in Senegal, and so on, you have a very Sufi-based Islam, which is very much resisting this. And we should be, I mean, people in the West, we should... <laughs> extend our hands. These are our allies 
in a world in which some of our religions are being used as mobilizing tools against others, and if we want to stop that, we have to uh, be allied with those in other, <clears throat> other religious communities and other civilizations who have a similar, uh, similar goal. So what happens, okay, what, what uh, rides on these definitions of these practices as religious, of the issues as religious and so on, is, is a very dangerous kind of elision. There is a great phrase being used in France, it was used uh, in January after Charlie Hebdo, and it was used by many people today after the terrible events of the November 13th. Il ne faut pas faire d'amalgame, right? Don't amalgamate. What they're trying to, trying to say, those people, is don't take the Muslim piety of this woman with the hijab as being the same as the Muslim supposed piety of a fundamentalist as being the same as the Muslim piety of the jihadi, right? It's not necessarily the same. Right? And what we find happening instead in many Western societies is precisely we're encouraging our citizens to, to fail is amalgam like that, you see? And there are, I mean, very, very roughly, there are two huge gaps that we're making people leap over. I mean, there is the piety fully accepting the contemporary world and democracy and what it, what it means and so on. You know, uh, this is, I mean, this is all our experience if we've fought these kind of fights and we fought the fight against the, against the charter and we had allies we were very close to and I'm now friends of people I wouldn't have been friends of before so something good has come and some of them include, you know, Muslim women wearing the hijab. There's that piety. There is the fundamentalist kind of piety which is not the same kind of thing. And then there's the jihadi, which are not the same as the fundamentalists. This is what is really very, very seriously wrong with this total amalgam. The people who are jihadi or jihadi you know, recruitable are people who are, generally speaking, very dislocated, desocialized, not really happy within the community, they're people who have very often really severe kind of identity crisis. And for some people, particularly young men, it would appear some people, the resolution of identity crisis can take the form of embracing a really violent ideology, partly because this seems to be uncompromising and clear, but partly because it involves attacking the people that you blame for having an identity crisis. You know? In this case, of course, there's an attempt to blame Western civilization for looking down on Islam and making you feel bad about your Islamic identity and so on, right? And we've seen this before in the Red Brigades and the Rota Armee Fraction. We've seen this before with other totally different ideological perspectives. And we're seeing this now with uh, Islam taken as the vehicle, supposedly Islam. So much so is this not a particularly Islamic phenomenon. The two great incidents last year in which a Canadian soldier was shot at by jihadi, the jihadi in question was a born Quebecois, uh, you know, uh, Quebecois de Souche, right? Somebody who was of Quebecois descent. Who was attracted to this? Not because they were attracted to Islam and they read the Quran and thought, oh yes, this. no, but because they were attracted to this whole stance. 
in which of, of a violent uh, negation of a lot of the things that they were brought up with. They were very, very disturbed young men. And so we have here double, a double mistake, a double amalgam is being made by a lot of our discussion. And we find this again and again and again. Islam is a block. So that woman with the hijab is part of the same direction of thought and sensibility as various imams of a highly fundamentalist kind, some of which we have in our country, much less than, than other countries, but some of whom we have. And then those two are the same as the jihadi. And there's really a, a big cliff, a cleft between these two, uh, these three. In other words, there are two big, as it were, gap, uh, deep holes which are being just leapt over in this interpretation. But if you have that interpretation, then, I'm going to give you an example. Uh, you know, we had the, the hijab was raised in the last Canadian election and some parties lost a lot of votes. I know that. Yeah. And uh, there was somebody writing in La Presse, which is really a very good, very civilized, very liberal uh, Montreal daily. It's not like the Journal de Montréal. Right? And this person said, well, it was not really fair maybe to target the hijab, but you, know, but you can't just say that it's totally uh, unproblematic because we have to survey very closely some of the practices of our Muslim immigrants if we don't, allow, if we don't want them to go off and do jihad. Well, just a minute, right? <laughs> you know, the likelihood of hijab wearers being off doing jihad in Syria is about, you know, about like mine or yours. I mean, it's just close to zero, right? And, but you can see that what's working in that innocent journal, it really is innocent because he you know, belonged to this organization that was not professionally enjoying stoking this up, which other media have done in Quebec. The, the assumption of this journalist was precisely this total amalgam. Now, if you turn it around, that is the most disastrous policy you can invent, right? Because you're helping the recruiters if you put everybody in the same basket, just people who are just some kind of Muslim piety where they want to wear a hijab is put as being in the antechamber of jihad. You are helping. That's what the recruiters are saying all the time to these kids. They despise you. They absolutely despise you. They have no recognition for you, right? Come with us. And every time you pass, you know, these absurd laws, for instance, outlying the, the, the burqa in which they passed in Paris, you know, you give them fuel. It's because you're making this amalgam, right? Now, I hope, I earnestly hope, because, you know, the French are very dear to us, to, especially because, you know, we share this language and this history, that they will take this lesson. It's hard to do that because Madame Le Pen, you know, Marine Le Pen is pushing them in the other direction and fight the amalgam at the same time as they fight with police in other ways is to stop, stop terror. But I think what I'm trying to say is here, all these things about the complexity of, of uh, Religion, division between religion and something else, it's not just in order to confuse everybody that I'm marking them out, but because we have choices to make in how we categorize things. And if you categorize them in a certain way, 
And you think that, well, the only way we're going to stop this is leaning on people wearing hijabs or something. You know, if you, out of this block thinking, you think that you can actually operate positively on the phenomenon by that kind of putting everything together, you are, Francois Vallon said this in a brilliant statement he made on the French television, yeah, stigmatization, that's what you're doing. You're making a stigmatizing move relative to these particular practices as aligned with the horrible practices of sending terrorists in to kill a lot of kids going off Friday night, you see. So, that's, that is the powerful message. But what lies behind, what makes stigmatization work is this oversimple view of what religion is, of what Islam is, of <clears throat> this non... And I, can you blame a lot of people? They're not experts in Islam. They're just sitting there in Shikutimi watching the television. They don't know any Muslims. I mean, obviously, they can be taken in by this, but we have to fight, I think, very hard in our societies to move in another direction. So I hope... Well, I hope I haven't confused you, but maybe I hope I have confused you. I, I, don't, <laughs> you know, I, think, uh, I think we should suddenly have our categories shaken up and scramble them <laughs> in, a new, in a new constellation in which we see these very powerful and important distinctions and know how to act in the light of them in a very different way from the way we're now acting. Okay, well, let me stop there and thank you very much for your very Thank you very much, Charles. And do you want to call directly on questioners or shall I call on people for you? Well, you may call. Okay, I'll call on two or three and you can pull them together? Okay. Okay. Great. I invite questions now. In the front row of the balcony, this woman with her hand up, please wait for microphones to come to you and tell us who you are when you speak. I probably be loud. Uh, use the microphone anyway. Thank you, Professor. That was absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much. But you provoked me into thinking about issues that I thought about in Quebec and here. Britain and France have taken very different positions on the burqa, and, and, and yet in some ways that's created some of the same problems that you described so eloquently in your speech. One of the issues I'm struggling with is I have a number of friends in Iran and Iraq and Saudi Arabia who are doing everything they can to fight wearing a hijab, wearing a burqa. And then I have friends near me in East London who are arguing with their daughters who want to start wearing hijabs and burqas again. And their mums and dads are horrified that, that they're taking this up. I just wondered if I could ask you to offer me any help in how I deal with this. Sorry, <laughs> I, I'm Greer Nicholson. I'm a Quebecer yeah, I mean, and a, a, a Londoner. I mean, as, yeah, as our new prime minister said <laughs> uh, in the election, you know, nobody has a right to tell a woman what to wear. But the, you know, the parents of the community don't have a right, and we don't have a right. Now, these women may be being told one thing by the original community and so on, or one thing by the parents namely wear it, and we, I mean, if we pass the legislation they want us to pass, we'll be telling them not to wear it. But the basic principle is, of our society is, it's kind of freedom of the individual to develop spiritually or whatever in, as, they, as they see fit. And that principle we should hold to. Now, the fact that it's violated in 
Upper Egypt is not a reason to violate it in Canada. That's what I keep saying. I mean, people say to me, but you know, if you were in Saudi Arabia, okay, I'm not, we're not in Saudi Arabia. We don't want to be like in Saudi Arabia. So, you know, we have to stick by the principle that this is something that you can choose. Now, if you can show that there is coercion from others, then it's another matter. It's, it's not that common in our, anywhere in our society because people are, generally speaking, I mean, Muslim population in Quebec is twice as educated on the tertiary level as the average population. So you can see it's, you know, but it's maybe different in different countries. Okay. Next question. Okay, the man in the third row here in a white shirt. Um, I'm Guy Lipscomb. I'm an interested guest of a Quebecois. <laughs> um, my question relates to the amalgam, the stereotyping that you describe, and particularly in relation to the problems with ISIL or ISIS going on. Um, these stereotypes and amalgams can be very powerful on social media, and they're also very effective uh, with the political class, depending on the media as well. And it strikes me that's a terrible kind of feedback loop you're developing there potentially with entrenched views and, and these uh, amalgams. Um, is there anything you've seen that can offer us hope that uh, there's going to be leadership that can overcome that kind of challenge? Well, I think, yeah, I mean, there ought to be. I mean, there, is, there are sort of funky of, of resistance to this where... Uh, Muslims and others have make, make friends. You know, like in certain schools in Montreal, the the kids growing up in those schools, they can't understand what this fuss is about because they had a Muslim friend and so on. So they can't, you know, they can't even see this. In certain places where people work, they work alongside Muslims. So there is this possibility of just people meeting a lot of other people, uh, beginning to eat into the force of these stereotypes. But there has to be a really concerted effort on the part of political leaders to point this out. I mean, to point out how many false alarms there are. You know, that, that uh, very often you see in the British press, think the Trojan horse in Birmingham. And so, I mean, that, that they, they just aren't properly looked into. So there has to be, I mean, in Quebec we have a, quite a responsible set of media and quite an irresponsible other set of media who have talked up these things, but we have, for the most part, political leadership, which will fight against that. But there, I mean, the ideal situation is if all significant parties utterly refuse to <clears throat> engage on this terrain and go back saying, you know, this is not the, everyone's not the same. Another thing that, of course, helps to sideline this is Muslim figures in the media and so that you know that it's a series of these things that can turn public opinion around, and we have to you know, work on that. Okay, let's go to the very back. Thank you. 
Thank you. Um, at the beginning of, of your lecture, you alluded to a shared um, common good conception of the good in Canada, and surely that um, must rely on a shared identity. And as a Quebecois living abroad, I'm, I've been put this question very often recently about what defines Canadian identity, let's say, compared to American identity or British identity, and I'm quite puzzled uh, by this question. I wonder if you could um, maybe give us what you think are the most important elements or aspects of the Canadian identity. <laughs> Canada is a multinational society, you know, and there are multinational societies that we hope will go on existing. I mean, the United Kingdom is a multinational society. I, hope, you know, I, wish, you, I wish you good success in this, but I'm slightly nervous. Uh, uh, <clears throat> and uh, I would say the same about the, the Catalan. You know, if we try to divide up the world so that Nobody is, in the end, in a minority situation. Well, we'll have, you know, I and my friends will be one country, and you and your friends. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Why can't we find ways of living together in a multinational way? That is, we recognize that we have in common that we're defending certain common interests, etc., but that the fundamental identity and nature of each society is what they want to defend, and the whole will help defend the parts. Now, to the degree that, for instance, federal Canada is becoming a, a place where people are more aware of and accepting of the French fact in North America, even, even outside Quebec, to that extent, that kind of requirement is slowly being, being met. The, I mean, the difficulty is that it's sometimes very hard for Canadians from outside Quebec to recognize how, what the Quebec identity is and, and the importance it has. But if we don't manage to run together a multinational society, who can? No. And unless somebody does this, we'll be just endlessly splitting up. That's, that is my... Yeah. Okay. Let's go up in the balcony, just standing next to you, the person right there. Yeah. Thanks. <coughs> uh, my name is Timothy Rimmonson, Knight. She- actually wrote my dissertation on uh, one of your articles, so very happy to be here today. Um, I, I wanted to ask uh, a bit about your concept of recognition um, and whether what you describe is still vulnerable to um, an essentialism, a, a fixity. So maybe you have a better concept of other societies, um, but you're still fixating them to a predefined identity. Um, instead of perhaps fostering uh, a mutual understanding between different cultures? Uh, I'm not sure I got it exactly, but, but um, I mean, there's a, there, the word identity is used on several levels, right? Used, I have a personal identity. I mean, there's a lot of different things that go together to make up my identity. And then there's what I'm calling a political identity. Now, I think our personal identities are in constant evolution, obviously. <clears throat> we live that. But... But political identities also need to be uh, need to see themselves as an evolution. I I didn't finish the first part fully, but I that the inherent danger in a modern democracy is that the accepted historic common identity targets um, some citizens. And for instance, that can happen because immigrants arrive from outside who are very different. This means that. The political identity of this kind of democracy has to be revisited, regularly revisited. 
in such a way as to include these others as full members of the society. So the meaning of Canadian multiculturalism, the meaning of Quebec interculturalism, and I can explain the difference anyway. The meaning is that these are attempts to say, yeah, people come from very different backgrounds, but we are building a structure in which they have a voice, they have a say, they have a, they have a place. It really involves, if you like, <clears throat> uh, redefinitions. One of the problems with the laïcité thing in France is that it's purely identité. I mean, it's not thought of as a good idea for today so much as, this is the French Republic. <clears throat> Very unhistorical because experts on the 1905 laws see that there were many strands in that, including ones that are much more uh, favorable to our laïcité ouverte, and so on, it was much more complex. But the idea that we started this way, we can't change, that is a totally mistaken idea. I mean, if you cannot revisit what makes your unity as a national identity regularly, you cannot exist in a world in which difference is arising. And you can close the borders all you like. Our children are going to raise issues that we aren't used to. You can see this in the last 50 years. I mean, women have raised identity issues. They didn't have to come in from outside. Gays have raised identity issues. They didn't have to come in from outside. So we are condemned to, sounds like South, you know, on est condamné à être libre. On est condamné au changement. We're condemned to continue. The, the, the sort of gamut of identities are going to be changing, and we have to regularly revisit this. So recognition in this context means I recognize you, we recognize all the all people here as equal citizens. That characterization is key. Okay. Let's go to the other side of the balcony in the second row. There's someone. Thank you. Uh, my name's John Madeley. I'm an associate of the school. Um, I wondered if you'd like to uh, comment or tell us the story of the uh, so-called Sharia courts in Quebec and the rather what I take to be uh, an unsuccessful experiment to incorporate them into as alternative dispute resolution mechanisms. Sorry, the, the so-called Sharia courts. The so, so-called Sharia courts. Uh, in it was not Quebec, was it? No. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm ill-informed. However, <laughs> <laughs> so, so Quebec patriotism is very important here. <laughs> I'm sorry, it might be Ontario, I don't know. <laughs> well, I thought that that was, uh, as a Canadian, I felt very ashamed of that discussion. Uh-huh. Because what was, it, what was at stake was the proposal... Sorry, I better get to the <laughs> What was at stake was a proposal to allow for some kinds of mediation in, in divorce cases, which already existed for Jews and Christians, allow it by Islamic figures, provided, A, they took a set of courses in the Canadian Charter and what the parameters are, B, the results could be referred beyond them, right? Now, if somebody hadn't used the S word, right, this might have passed. But the same thing happened to Roland Williams here, right? People get hysterical. Oh, Pancharia, oh, come on, 
I mean, they don't know what they're talking about. I mean, you know, Sharia means whatever law means, and it can mean many different things. And it was such a fuss in Ontario that the Ontario Premier canceled the Jewish and Christian uh, provision for their, in order to have equality and, and deny. Yeah. That's the sad story. But you see, we're dealing with a kind of ambient, floating, confused Islamophobia where whatever smacks of this big block religion <laughs> is considered dangerous. We still we have a long way to go. There are also powerful think tanks in the United States with lots of money that are spreading this stuff you know, on the internet all the time. It's really, if you, if you look up and see the internet, you get a terrible depression after a while. Okay. Let me go to the gentleman in sort of the back about, yeah, you can see him there. Thank you, Professor Charles Taylor, for a very interesting um, talk. The question I have is, are we locked in the paradox of democracy? So if there is this uh, need to constantly define who we are, uh, was Carl Schmitt right in his definition of the political by saying that the friend-other distinction is what yeah. is really at play here? And if that is the logic, then the conflation of all the Muslim groups and identities into one mass block uh, serves the process of making who we are here uh, very powerful. So in, in a sense, in order for us to have a democracy here in the UK, we need to, to view the Muslim community in that one block because it gives us an understanding of who we are vis-a-vis -vis who they are. Is there a way, is there, are, are we locked into that binary? Is there any way we can trans transcend no, no, it in I mean, any sense? No, I mean, this is clearly not... So I'm, uh, uh, Carl Schmidt, I have trouble understanding the interest people have in this uh, right-wing, partly confused figure, I think. Uh, but you know, a lot of my left-wing friends are, I think, Carl Schmitt is just uh, is wonderful. So, okay, but um, do we take the thesis that we can only have a sense of our unity by having the adversary you know, that we divine ourselves against? Well, we've often succeeded in not doing that. You know, we succeeded in knitting together a society with lots of difference in Canada. Now, there are cases where we haven't, so there's still frontiers where we have to work on this. But we succeeded in knitting together a society with a great deal of difference without necessarily having an enemy. I mean, maybe the United States. But, but you know, but, well, I mean, very often it's true. Canadians have this kind of contrast case that they're very concerned with not imitating, but that's not, you know, it's not the, 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 the real fight, <laughs> the enemy of, that, that Schmidt is, <clears throat> is, uh, is offering. See? So I just don't see, I think this is a kind of huge metaphysical shot out of the pistol. That, you, know, it, you can't have a unity without the friend-enemy distinction being crucial. Okay, let's look at history. You know, let's not just take this as, as red. Okay, let's go back here to the woman in the next to the last row there. Striped shirt, yeah. Hi, my name is Amr. Um, I'm a master's student at LSE and a former McGill student. Um, my question is about C-51. You briefly kind of mentioned the charter in the Quebec context, but I was wondering what you thought Bill C-51 
the effect of Bill C-51 on how we understand multiculturalism in Canada and what it might do to impact ideas of surveillance. Mike, may I want to use the mic? What's that? Mike. <laughs> to allow the police to be theoretically more, more effective. Now, I'm not an expert in law, but all my lawyer friends say that it went much too far. They were there weren't proper provisions for oversight, etc. But I think uh, I get the point of your question that it was part of a sort of stoking up of fear among Canadians about these outsiders, and it was part of an attempt not to look at the refugee crisis and say that it's you know not something that we should take part in. So it's part and it's part of the Harper's appeal, you know, anti niqab All these formed a kind of, of constellation. And I think you could argue that the, this constellation was roundly rejected by the Canadian electorate, you know, because something like two-thirds of the, of the population voted against that. So that's, you know, some, sometimes things don't, things don't always get worse. Is <laughs> okay, the gentleman in the green shirt in the very back. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, my name is Bharat Ganesh. I'm a PhD candidate at UCL in geography, and I also work at an organization called Talmama here, um, where we record anti-Muslim hate crimes. Um, I think it's really interesting that you talked about the amalgamation question. Um, but to me, it sounds, it's almost a little bit surprising because that we even have to say, don't amalgamate. It seems like something, I think that actually reveals in many ways how backward we really can be, that we have to even say that. Um, I was wondering in terms of, uh, you problematized, for example, the way that, uh, for example, um, fundamentalists uh, in Christian right in the United States, as well as, uh, for example, Daesh, uh, have a narrowing or a kind of closure in their discourse. I think I noticed that, actually, in, in the secular liberal narratives that we have as well, we have certain types of closures. I think one really good example is the way that British values have been framed um, in the last few years in the UK. Um, so I think one of the things we also need to do in order to kind of cut back at that kind of par strong partitioning and start blurring the lines like you're talking about is actually acknowledging the constitutive violence of our own democracies. Um, and I was just wondering how much you think that kind of acknowledgement matters and how far you think it should go. Yeah, okay, well, it depends what we're, sorry, it depends what we're talking about is constitutive violence. I mean, certainly if you want to look at the past, uh, you know, <clears throat> there's been empire and, and uh, a lot of other things of that kind in the past. But um, you have, we'd have to spell out a bit more what you mean by constitutive violence of today's democracy. That means, unfortunately, there are elements of constitutive exclusion right, because we have an economic system and, which very often leaves people with no chance and <clears throat> no way out and so on. Um, but constitutive violence, you know, I, I always am concerned about using that in such an extended way that it uh, loses its real bite. So let's go just four rows in the front. There's a man at his hand up. Yeah. John Strafford. 
Um, Professor, I wonder if you would uh, define for me uh, the meaning of democracy and where within that meaning the will of the majority and protection of minorities is placed. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, democracy. <laughs> to find that in a few seconds is going to be very difficult, but modern, modern democracy is a very interesting, sometimes confusing amalgam of ancient democracy, where the demos was only a part of the population, it was meant to be the, you know, the non-elite part, and for Aristotle, democracy was the rule not of everybody but of the non-elite part, amalgam of that with an ideal of democracy as the rule of everybody having developed some kind of common will. And we add to that our notion of the rule of law and therefore safeguards for minority. You can't just do anything. That's, but the, our, our meaning of democracy floats back and forth between those two, uh, <clears throat> those two senses of demos. And with the implicit, I might say, telic conception that the ideal for democracy would be one in which these two come together. That is, the, <clears throat> the non-elites and the whole people, as it were. And so I think you find in modern democracies a, the, a sense of vibrancy when we're moving towards that, we think we're moving towards that goal, and a sense of disconnection, very often not participating in some way if you are moving away from the goal. I was thinking of the case of India that Mukulik has written about you know, that that sense of the people can really count, the people, the non-elites, can really count in the system, uh, gives a sense of, well, democracy is really important, it's going somewhere. The sense that they're less and less capable of affecting the system. So the goal, the gap between demos in the Greek sense and demos in the modern sense is getting bigger and bigger, leads to very deep, demoralization, which I think we are now suffering from in modern Western democracies, which is instanced in the general tendency towards a falling rate of participation, the greater power of money, which in turn, etc., you know, it's a kind of spiral. We're in danger of spiraling down. Okay, next question. Um, we've got in the very back, man in the black shirt. Thank you. Uh, my name is David Goodhart. I'm a think tanker and journalist. Um, we have met once before. Um, but I have to say I was slightly surprised by your talk and, and think you were really quite unfair to mainstream politicians in most Western societies. The stigmatization point is precisely the point that they make and hammer away at whenever there are um, significant outrages after 7-7, for example. Um, so I think you, uh, you, you misread our politics, actually, if you think that that is really still such a major problem. And I'd just like to make one or two other points in relation to what you right, said. Just, maybe just one, and let's have an answer. Well, yeah. I mean, the, the point about laicite, I mean, why, why is it so Quebec has strong links to France? Laicite requires that uh, there are no religious symbols or no religious clothes worn in schools. Or what, I don't see why that is such a terrible thing. Um, it may be that lots of, the, of the, the terrorists we're talking about do indeed have personality defects, but are you really saying 
it is just a coincidence they all come from Muslim backgrounds. Oh, they don't. Um, well, a, a few of them are converts, okay, okay, a few of them are converts. And arising from that, do you think that Muslim communities have no special responsibilities for, for dealing with the issue of extremism that, broadly speaking, arises from within their own communities? No. And, and okay. final point... Not, not more points. I think oh, that's okay. enough points for okay. now. Thanks. I mean, I'm not, uh, not saying that all Western public... On the contrary, I'm, you know, in the Canadian case, there were just two, two parties, that, that, uh, which uncharacteristically dived into this uh, unfortunate... Uh, basket and the others not. So I mean, we, I, and I don't, and I think that the problem with France has been a series of legislations that don't make any sense except as a kind of stigmatization. And you know, what is the great drama of a girl there sitting with a hijab and another girl sitting with a hijab? I think you have to, you have to really invest this with unanagam in order to whip people up to thinking that that is a big. Problem. Now, do most, of course they have. And that's why stigmatization is a mistake. I'm not saying it's everywhere happening, but I happen to have lived through attempts. And I've been fighting against attempts, and I've seen them in other countries. And therefore, I speak with great feeling on this. But I don't think that it's at all universal. And there are some countries in Europe which, where people really stay away from it. So, I mean, there are, almost all countries have some of these radical right, you know, equivalent of the of the, you know, the Freiheitspartei in Austria, the Front National, and so on. So, unfortunately, many European countries have these uh, parties. But in most, in a great many European countries, the major parties stay away from this. I'm not saying that at all. And, of course, the Muslim communities have a, and they should be brought into a common effort. And where, that, where things really succeed is where they are brought into that common effort. Okay, gentlemen in the tie in the fourth, fifth row back, fourth. Uh, thank you for the lecture. My name is Fawaz Salah. I'm a student uh, of development studies at SOAS up the street. Um, you started off by talking about the patriotism being embedded in historical context. And so my question is about Montreal specifically. Uh, Montreal and Canada has been receiving immigrants for decades, each, of, each group of which has suffered or had to um, adjust and face different kinds of discrimination before they kind of settled in and became part of the establishment in the mainstream. Um, now the latest group is maybe the Muslims. Um, do you think that there's a role for other minorities that have preceded the Muslim community in, in, in speaking up about this kind of discrimination that newer immigrants are facing? And if so, uh, has that happened in, in Montreal specifically and in Quebec? It's happened a lot. I mean, there are a lot of people from other less recent communities that have stood together. We've had quite a, I mean, effective movement which groups a whole lot of people together standing on the principle of equal citizenship. Yeah. But, I mean, it doesn't always fully happen. You know, and there are all these disturbing things like the Middle East that sometimes create cleavages. But that's the road to success. I mean, building this very big coalition and operating together. Okay, we're getting close to the end. So just a few more questions here. Um, let's say I'd mentioned the man in the yellow shirt sort of near the center. As um, a Muslim who was born in France and 
um, who had a first-hand experience of the social fracture in France between some of the Muslim community and, and the French. Uh, and in light of recent events, um, I've felt quite pessimistic when it came to the future of, of France's identity crisis. Uh, do you personally believe that um, France will manage to, to fight this identity crisis? And how, how do you feel that the Muslim community will fit within this new French identity? Well, you see, I think that there's, there's big problems because a lot of Muslims are Algerian and there's been a terrible history there, you see. And so there's a certain amount of problem of healing that. <clears throat> but if there were a, a sense created in the banlieue that there was a real concern by the government to, you know, the very bad situation of very high unemployment, in, you know, in, in uh, Clichy Subois, it's about half the population is under 25, and there's a huge uh, youth unemployment. If there was some kind of really serious attempt to, to remedy this, even if it didn't immediately succeed, if there was precisely a definition that we are all French together, right, then, which you saw after the Charlie Hebdo, I mean, some people say, je suis Charlie, other people say, je suis Ahmed, you know, the political, right, okay? That's what, and, and then everyone was, was saying that time, il faut pas faire d'amalgame, right? Now, I, this requires a great act of political courage on the part, in this case, of the socialist government because the Front National will be saying simply we need more police, we need to close the borders and so on. And the socialist government, a lot of them would like to say this and they should say this, no, we have to, Rosson said it brilliantly in the television the other day. We have to, we have the Nord-Rap Exterior, we know what the outside of the French nation is, but we haven't, we haven't recognized it's all its components and how they come together. And he was a transparent reference to the minority <coughs> Muslims and others who feel very profoundly, very profoundly French there. It's their major language. You know. So there has to be a discourse by the non-Front National this is not only a good idea because it's morally superior. This is the only way properly to combat this kind of danger because it may be combated effectively if everybody is in it together. I mean, all the, you know, are just motivated, not just not to go on jihad, but motivated to, to heal the, the divisions in the society. So there has to be this courage to say, we are offering something totally different from the Front National, not a kind of lesser version, not, a, not as extreme as them. And the problem in France has been that the UMP, which is not Républicain, have been running just, you know, a few steps behind the Front National, and the socialists don't seem to be conceiving their task in another direction. But see, you have to say not just this is a better way, this is a more moral way, a more human way, which it is, but this is a more effective way of defending our way of life, which it is. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. I, we're waiting for one more last question. Okay. At the very end, gentleman in the tie right there. Make it count. Hi, Emerson Clark, Fier Québécois aussi. In the beginning of your talk, you mentioned uh, the idea of um, political identity and the idea of inclusion, um, sort of you know, being you know, in support of that or at least buttressed on that. Um, 
using Canada as an example, do you think um, you know, the, the fact that there have been two different or a number of different uh, Quebecois prime ministers or more recently uh, the mayor of Calgary being uh, a Muslim, do you see that as progress made to, say, bridging the gaps? And if so, do you think um, what lessons can Canada potentially tell, tell the world? Oh, and, and if so, do you, um, are there, what lessons can we, can we learn from that that might be useful for the rest of the world? Well, I mean, it's such a different situation because, you know, it's a different situation because we have been an immigrant society. There is a society receiving immigrants. From, so there really is a big difference between the two hemispheres. In our society, not just ours, but America, but Brazil, but Peru, but Argentina, but Chile, and so on, have all been Uruguay. I mean, you could just go on and on. They've all been, for more than a century, only two centuries, receiving immigrants regularly, giving them citizenship, and so on. So, in a certain sense, there's a pattern here which is normal. And then occasionally it sticks with a certain degree. Whereas in Europe, well, this is less true of the UK. UK has received a lot of people, but in, let's say somewhere like Germany, it was, you know, inconceivable 50 years ago, right? And then... Uh, when people first came, they said they're Gastarbeiter, they're going to go back, right? And they, did, and they had a citizenship based purely on <clears throat> descent, not on, on territorial, where, where you were born and so on. So it's much harder here, and one has to overcome older reflexes. So you see, I don't think we're necessarily a good example. I mean, just maybe some practices may be interesting to take up, but there's really a different kind of task here. So Charles, thank you. Wonderfully informative lecture.